Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is the Naked Genetics Podcast, taking a look inside your genes. Kicking off this new series, we're taking a look at genes and evolution, from finding out how whole populations change over time to studying the evolution of individual tumours in a cancer patient. You don't eat, or you don't eat and you don't digest, or you don't deal with the food in the right way, you're not going to survive. You need food. Food is one of those things like sex that we need in order for species to keep on going. We're also talking about dogs and their diseases, and wondering whether the USB-sized DNA sequencer is hope or hype. Plus, we've got our gene of the month, whether Sonic, Desert or Indian, we'll be carefully getting to grips with the prickly persona of the hedgehog gene. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for March 2012, with me, Dr Kat Arney, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. Back in 1973, Theodosius Dobzhansky published an essay titled Nothing in Biology Makes Sense Except in the Light of Evolution. So to start off, we thought we'd find out how the gradual shuffling and shifting of genes over time shapes not only whole populations of living organisms over hundreds and thousands of years, but also acts on rogue cells within the body on a much smaller timescale. As we usually understand it, evolution refers to a process of change over time, driven by natural selection. So random genetic changes in a population are selected for, or against, by pressures in the environment. To get an overview of the processes driving genetic evolution and how it's shaped species over time, including making humans what we are today, I spoke to Mark Thomas, Professor of Evolutionary Genetics at University College London. We started by going right back to basics, by thinking about what evolution actually means. Up until recently, when we talked about evolution, we meant genetic evolution because what we were talking about was changes that are inherited. If they're not inherited, if they're not passed on from one generation to another, then evolution can't act on them. Processes can choose, or natural selection can choose something as being a good idea or not a good idea. But if it's not passed on from generation to generation, then it's not an evolutionary process. And, of course, when we think about biology and passing on from generation to generation, we're firmly in the field of genetics there. And, in fact, you know, many people would argue that, in fact, evolution is just genetics plus time. Um, So you you add the rules of genetics to time, you'll get evolution. It's just inevitable. And so what do we mean exactly by evolution? What are some of the pressures that are acting to to change genes over time? When we think about evolutionary pressures, of course, the first thing that we think about is natural selection. And, of course, Darwin first proposed this as the means by which species change over time. And natural selection is a wonderful idea. And, of course, it's real, it works, and and so on. But we, we have to remember that there are other forces that change the frequency of 
genetic variants over time, of different gene types over time. And one of the really important things is just randomness, just the noisiness of inheritance. So there are many, many different genetic variants in a population, for example, if you imagine a population of, of people alive today, and some of those aren't going to get passed on, and some of them are. Well, some of them might get passed on because they're disadvantageous, because they're they cause their carriers to die or to fail to reproduce in some way. But some just won't get passed on by chance. So you can imagine for something like humans to be able to run away from a predatory animal, it would be advantageous to them to select for genes that make you run faster. What are some of the other characteristics that, that humans have been selected for? Ten years ago, you would have got somebody waving their arms around saying, well, I think it could have been a bit of this and a bit of that. A bit of the other. But now we know exactly what's been selected. They are... Genes involved in environmental adaptation. So one obvious, clear-cut environmental adaptation you see in humans today is skin colour. And that's obviously a response to the amount of uh, sunlight and particularly the amount of UV. And then things involved in diet. When you think about it, that makes a lot of sense because you don't eat or you don't eat and you don't digest or you don't deal with the food in the right way, you're not going to survive. You need food. Food food is one of those things like sex that we need in order for species to keep on going. And it turns out that, in fact, if we look, let's say, at Europeans and we dig into the genome of Europeans and look for these signatures of selection that we can see nowadays. We can actually see in the genes these signatures of selection. We can see, we can get an idea of how strong they are. One of the very, very strongest signatures of selection in Europeans is actually an adaptation to be able to digest the sugar in milk. And that only occurred in the last seven and a half or 8,000 years. That should be obvious why that's the case, because prior to when we had farming, we didn't have animals. And if we didn't have animals, we wouldn't have had a supply of fresh milk to drink, well, we suppose we could have got it in other ways, but it would be a bit rude. So, you know, we, we really need domesticated animals to get the milk. And sure enough, that's the time when we see this adaptation to being able to digest the sugar in milk. There are also adaptations in our immune systems. That's exactly what you'd expect, because, of course, pathogens are evolving themselves all the time, and we're in an arms race with pathogens. We're in, we're in this constant battle. You know, we don't, you don't win that war. You just keep on fighting it, and you keep on doing as well as you can. And the pathogens are trying to do as well as they can as well. So this, the genes that are involved in our immunity to pathogens, you can see really clear-cut signatures of natural selection having acted on those. Perhaps more surprisingly... Another set of genes that seem to have been under strong natural selection, but it's, it's maybe a little bit less obvious why, are genes involved in sperm motility and in sperm, uh, sperm production. And the theory behind that, why that's the case, is that, in fact, sperm are competing with each other. And if you think about it, I mean, you know, if, you've got, <laughs> if you have a multiple mating event, then if one set of sperm could kill out the other set of sperm they're more likely to produce offspring. And so, therefore, there's going to be some... That may be reflecting some kind of competition between sperm. Now, the, the ones, of course, that everybody would really want to find out and be all excited about is, what about the ones that make us brainy? Because, of course, you know, we're, one, <laughs> I mean, we're quite a brainy species as species go, but, um, you know, you go back about five million years. I mean, we were same as a chimp, similar-sized brain. So, you know, the really kind of cool questions are, you know, what has changed in terms of our genes, that makes us brainier. Unfortunately, we don't really know a lot about that one. There are a few genes that people have suggested are involved in brain size. There are genes that people have suggested are involved in linguistic ability, language ability. But what it's beginning to look like is actually what 
made us start doing really smart things was not natural selection evolving our brains to be cleverer. I mean, ultimately, they must have evolved to be cleverer at some point. But doing the clever stuff seems to have been another form of evolution. And that form of evolution is cultural evolution. So you've talked about these these five pressures. Uh, we've talked about food, we've talked about sex, we've talked about the environment, our brains and the immune system. And you say you can see these genetic signatures of evolution. How do you do that now? How can we actually look in our genes now and our genes in the past and see how this is, has evolved? Imagine we're, we're back 10,000 years ago and some new mutation arises. And that mutation, is when it arises, only arises in one person. So it's very, very rare initially. Imagine that that new mutation makes absolutely no difference to anybody. It doesn't help them survive, but it doesn't lead to them dying either. By chance, that mutation may be passed on to one child or to no children or to two children or three children. And then by chance, the next generation might be passed on again and again. So you can imagine that the frequency of that variant might change a little bit in each generation. It might go up, might go down. Now imagine another scenario, right? So a new mutation occurs 10,000 years ago, only happening in one individual, but it gives a big advantage. So it's much more likely to be passed on to two or three or four children and to increasing frequency in the subsequent generations. So if it's increasing in frequency, then it's going to go up and up and up and up till it's very, very, very common, right? So the difference between a gene that's been under natural selection and a gene variant that's just bouncing around, just neutral, is that the ones under natural selection, they go from low frequency to high frequency quickly. And it's the quickly that's the essential thing. Okay? So we can tell whether a gene's gone from low frequency to high frequency by, for example, looking at it in a population from ancient DNA and then looking at it in a population today and seeing what the difference in frequency is. And if that change is simply too quick to explain by random processes, then we have to invoke natural selection instead. Professor Mark Thomas from University College London. We'll have more from Mark in a future show, looking at his work investigating how cultural as well as biological evolution has shaped our human species. Coming up later, we'll be finding out how evolution is at work within tumours, which may help to explain why cancer can be so difficult to treat. But now it's time to take a look at some of this month's top stories from the world of genetics research with science writer Nell Barry. So what have you got for us this month? So this is about dogs and Epstein-Barr virus, which is a type of virus that can cause some types of cancer. And it can actually do that in dogs as well. And this could maybe mean that we've got a new model for studying this type of um, relationship in humans. Because there's quite a lot of human diseases that are actually in dogs. I remember a long time ago there was a paper about, I think, narcolepsy and Dobermans and all these dogs just falling over asleep. At the moment there's no, there's no other animals that get Epstein-Barr virus. Why do you think this is going to be useful? Well, one interesting thing about this virus and a lot of other types of viruses is that we know that many, many people are affected with them, infected with them rather, but they don't all always lead to particular types of cancer in everyone who's got the virus inside them. So we need to figure out why that is. Why are some people susceptible to this and others aren't? Perhaps if we could figure this out in dogs, it will give us some clues for what's going on in humans and that might lead to new ideas for how to treat the disease or maybe prevent it. Because Epstein-Barr virus is really, really common, but particularly in places like Africa, it actually causes an awful lot of cancers. 
exactly. So we don't really know what's going on there. Why why are some people susceptible to this and others aren't? We just we just don't know what's happening inside those cells at the moment. And if we have a, an experimental model in dogs, for example, that could really give us a powerful way to figure out what's happening. That's cool. And another story that I noticed uh, involving dogs and their diseases is um, about epilepsy. And actually, quite a number of different breeds of dogs are affected by epilepsy. There's that Belgian shepherd dogs, about one in five of them gets a type of epilepsy. And there's some researchers in Finland have tracked down a gene that might be involved in this. Um, what, What have they found here? So here they're looking at an area of a particular chromosome that may be the key to what's going on in these dogs. And it's again, it's a, it's another funny one where it seems like quite a lot of dogs have this particular area and have mutations in this area of the chromosome, but they're not all getting epilepsy. So again, it's kind of, you know, what's happening there? Why why is this affecting some dogs and not others? Can we figure this out? And could that maybe give us clues for the disease in humans as well? Because I think the thing to point out about dogs is that they're, they're quite highly bred, so they've got less genetic variation than humans. And I, I noticed the uh, the research group that's done this, they've been looking at all sorts of other dogs as well, and they have a canine DNA database in Finland. They've got DNA from 40,000 samples from more than 250 different breeds, so I think that's quite a useful resource there. Exactly. Another story that, that we also noticed this month is about the microbiome. Now they've sequenced the human genome, they're also trying to move on to sequencing all the bugs in our gut. Is this possible now, do you reckon? It certainly looks like that. I mean, we've got so much more powerful genetic sequencing technology compared to, you know, 10 or even two or three years ago. And it's it's just really exciting, the amount of data you can get out of this. And I suppose the funny thing about this research is we don't really know what we're going to do with the data yet. We've got this amazing potential for finding out all kinds of cool things, but... We don't know what those cool things are going to be. So a lot of the coverage is a bit like, is this hope? Is it hype? What are we going to do with it? How is it going to help people? And we don't know yet, but I don't think that's a reason why we shouldn't be doing it. I think it's it looks really exciting and it could have a lot of interesting applications for lots of kinds of diseases. Yeah, some of the coverage I was seeing was saying, well, we sequenced the human genome and, you know, it hasn't solved everything. But I don't think that's a reason not to do this, because actually, when you think about it, uh, manipulating the bugs in your gut is probably easier than trying to develop drugs that target gene faults. Because have you, have you seen the stuff about poo transplants? This is great. Have you seen this? It's really cool. Yeah, that just sounds amazing. So it's kind of taking all the bugs from someone else's gut and transplanting them into somebody who's maybe affected by autoimmune problems or they might have something wrong with their digestion. And in some people, it seems to have a really amazing effect. And it's, again, you know, don't really know what's going on there. But if we can figure out how all these little bugs are interacting, how they affect people, then we could maybe work out a nicer way to do that that doesn't involve transplanting poo. I don't know if it it works. Yeah, exactly. And another story that hit the headlines, the USB-sized gene sequencer. Now, people just went nuts for this did you see this one i think it was one of those ones where you look at the picture and just go oh my god it's amazing it plugs into your computer the and then, future is here yeah and then you think actually what what would i personally do with that i can't do anything with that but. i'd sequence anything <laughs> <laughs> but one point they made as part of this story was you know yeah you get all this data out of it but then what do you do with it you, you've got your usb plug-in but you might also need a supercomputer to go with it to analyze all the stuff that you've got that might be a bit more expensive than the sequencer itself yeah, what's interesting is that it's called, I think, gridiron uh, technology. It works in a different way to normal sequences in that there's, there's basically little nanopores that are kind of tiny holes and the DNA gets pulled through it like pulling a, a necklace through a hole and each nucleotide, each letter of the DNA gives out a slightly different electrical signal and they monitor those so you're sort of going pop, 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 pop 
ACTG, whatever. That's what they say. Uh, there is quite a lot of controversy about how accurate it is. As sort of speaking of sequencing and things like that, earlier in the programme uh, we heard from Mark Thomas, who's looking at human evolution and cultural evolution. And there's a, a nice story I noticed about cows. <laughs> What's going on here? I really like this. So it was looking at... DNA from ancient cow ancestor fossils from Iran, in fact. And that, that was quite an interesting bit because they've, they've taken these bones from a very hot desert environment and still somehow managed to get DNA out of them that they can use to figure out what the DNA sequences were back in those ancestors of cattle. And this kind of made me think, oh, you know, it's like Jurassic Park, you know, we can recreate prehistoric cows. I got very excited. They're not quite there yet, obviously, but it's interesting to see how... You've got this very small population of cattle that were initially domesticated and that's given rise to all the kinds of cows we have today. So that's quite cool. I thought it was cool. And as well, the point that they make in the um, in the story, I saw that these were oryx, big ox things. Now, even when you start domesticating things like that, it's going to be tricky. So I think it's probably you know a number of years before they really got them domesticated. Mm. So the early life of a, uh, of a cattle herder. Yeah, it might have been quite scary. And then finally, a nice little story about sunflowers. Are you, are you an art fan? Yeah, I kind of saw this and thought, I don't get the point of this. But it's good fun because they've looked at sunflowers in Van Gogh's very famous painting, figured out that there's a funny little mutation going on in some of the flowers in the picture. And then they've gone to find out exactly what causes that mutation. And they've looked at the genes behind it. I do think it's interesting with plants because people do breed them to have all sorts of characteristics that maybe not that useful, but certainly pretty. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's kind of something that you might think that looks cool on the plant and it's quite interesting to find out what's going on in the genes. Thanks, Nell. And now here's a quick roundup of some of the other genetics news this month. For a start, never mind gorillas in the mist. How about gorillas in the lab? Scientists at the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute have finally sequenced the whole genome of the gorilla, the last of the great apes to have its genome read. This means we can now compare the genomes of humans, chimps, gorillas and orangutans, shedding new light on primate evolution. The results show that gorillas diverged from chimps and humans about 10 million years ago. And although chimps are still our closest primate relative, there are some intriguing similarities between human and gorilla genes. For example, in the evolution of genes for hearing, which cast doubt on theories that the evolution of human hearing is linked to our language development. Scientists at UCLA have identified around 2,000 genes in zebra finches linked to singing. This is more than 1,500 than were previously known about. All 2,000 show changes in activity levels when the birds sing, and a number of them are also found in humans, making researchers think they may also play a role in human speech and speech disorders such as autism. Researchers studying hydra, tiny sea creatures related to corals and jellyfish, have made the surprising discovery that their stinging cells, called conidocytes, are sensitive to light. Although it's known that these cells sting in response to touch and taste, this is the first time they've been linked to light sensing. The scientists, led by Todd Oakley, found that the stingy cells contain opsins, light-sensitive proteins that are used widely in light-sensing organs and eyes across the animal kingdom. Oakley thinks that his findings may help to shed light on the evolution of eyes. Well, we'll see. And writing in the journal Nature Biotechnology, scientists in Australia have bred a new strain of salt-tolerant wheat by crossing in a gene from a more ancient strain of the plant with a higher tolerance for salt. 
Around 20% of agricultural land around the world is affected by high saltiness or salinity, and that can seriously affect plant growth, and it's only getting worse as the climate changes. At the moment, the researchers have tested the gene in durum wheat. It's used to make pasta and couscous, and they hope to cross it into bread wheat next. Importantly, they didn't use GM techniques to get the gene into wheat, so they're hoping this will speed up the process of testing and commercialisation. And finally, researchers in the US have sequenced the genome of a particular species of fungus that can turn cellulose into biofuel. The fungus, called Ascochorin sarcoides, was found to have more than 80 clusters of genes that can convert cellulose into useful fuel, many of which have previously only been found in plants. The scientists hope their work could pave the way for further explorations of the potential of fungi for making fuel. And if you want to find out more about any of these stories, the references are all on our website. That's thenakedscientist.com slash genetics. One of the biggest genetic stories this month came from the world of cancer research. Writing in the New England Journal of Medicine, Professor Charles Swanton and his team discovered that different parts of a tumour, as well as tumours that have spread to other parts of the body, have different patterns of gene faults. I spoke to Professor Swanton, who's based at the Cancer Research UK London Research Institute, about his new results and what it means for our understanding of cancer and how we treat it. We had to determine how representative a single tumour biopsy was of the entire tumour genomics landscape and by that I mean if you identify a mutation in one part of the tumour how likely are you to identify that mutation in another part of the tumour because clearly if we're going to identify new ways of predicting drug response we have to go for um, genetic events that are common throughout all parts of the tumour so that a random biopsy could pick those genetic events up and what we found, actually, is that in this study, when we took multiple biopsies from um, several primary renal cancers, and in some cases they're metastatic sites, that the number of genomic aberrations or, or the pattern of genomic aberrations very often wasn't shared across all biopsies. And in fact, when we counted the number of mutations, about two-thirds of the entire mutational load in the first two tumours we sequenced were not shared across every biopsy taken from those two tumours. So this is quite a big difference from the original tumour. You find differences in the gene faults within the tumour and also in secondary cancers where it's spread. Presumably this almost blows personalised medicine out of the water. What, what do you think is going on here? No, I, I definitely don't think this blows personalised medicine out of the water. I think what this does is, is actually begins to inform us that if we consider tumours as trees where we have the common mutations represent the trunks of the tree, these mutations are present at every site of the disease, and the mutations that differ from one region to the next represent the branches. Now, in terms of personalised medicine, one could perhaps think of HER2 or the BRAF mutation as the mutation or the amplification event that occurs at every site of the disease and is therefore a good drug target. So that's, that's the trunk. The trunk, exactly, that controls the disease effectively because that mutation or genetic aberration is present at every site of the disease. The model 
taken to its sort of logical conclusion also helps to perhaps think about how drug resistance is acquired, that low-frequency events within the tumour that may confer drug resistance upon the tumour are equivalent to the mutations perhaps that occur in the branches of this tumour um, to take the tree analogy further. And during treatment, those resistance mutations may be selected out, enabling the tumour to evade drug treatment. So when you cut off some branches, it just keeps growing. Exactly, that's right. It's like cutting off some branches. What does this mean for the the field of, of genomics research in cancer? First and foremost, I think we need to sequence fewer tumours at greater depth and at multiple regions, comparing primary with multiple metastatic sites to really truly identify those driver truncal mutations that are present and responsible for the disease biology at every site of the disease. Those are going to be very efficient drug targets, one would imagine. It also tells us that actually understanding what's driving the diversity in, in terms of the tree model, what's driving the, the, the changes between the trunk and the branches, actually may be very important for trying to restrict underlying tumour diversity to stop, if you like, the target from moving because it's the diversity within a tumour that is likely responsible for tumour adaptation, resistance to treatment and potentially the acquisition of mutations that allow tumours to grow at sites distant from the original tumour. I hope in the next 10 to 15 years, considering tumours as, as trees, and trunks and branches, might help to improve the development and discovery of new drugs and enable us to understand how resistance to treatment is acquired by studying how those branches are cut off. You mentioned that you're sequencing the whole genomes of several samples of of a single cancer. How have advances in technology allowed us to do this kind of research? Well, I mean, we wouldn't have been able to do this research two or three years ago. I mean, the the advances in um, sequencing machines, in computer technology... Um, have been immense over the last two to three years and continue to be um, dramatic and will continue in the future to to change and enable us to sequence tumours and process the data at an unprecedented rate. We're already seeing in some centres in the US and elsewhere offer patients access to whole genome sequencing facilities as part of their treatment. So already we're seeing tumour genome sequencing impact upon patient care. And finally, for you, where next for for this research and for your team? What we're very excited about is the implications of this research to our understanding of how resistance is acquired during treatment because it's only by understanding resistance to treatment that we will really make progress in prolonging patient benefit from the drug treatments we already have in the clinical setting. So it's really understanding what's going on in the branches of the tumours is understanding how the branches change through therapy and most importantly I think understanding what initiates the change from the trunk to the branches what is basically creating the underlying tumour diversity and when we've addressed all of those problems I think we'll have a much greater understanding of kidney cancer as a human disease and our hopefully ability to target it much more effectively. That was Professor Charlie Swanton from the Cancer Research UK London Research Institute. And you can find out more about that research on the charity's Science Update blog. That's scienceblog.cancerresearchuk.org. (laughs) 
Now let's have a rummage in the post bag and answer some of your genetics questions. To kick off, we've got a question from Sheldon who asks, Why does cancer have multiple causes? Most diseases only have one or two causes, and is it all down to damaged DNA? Now, as we heard from Professor Swanton earlier, at its heart, cancer is a disease driven by faulty genes, either faults that lead to genes being switched on that drive cells to grow and spread, or that lead to protective genes being switched off. In fact, one of the most potent causes of gene damage is reactive oxygen molecules, these free radicals, that are produced by our own cells as they make energy. We can also inherit gene faults that make our cells more likely to pick up damage or fail to repair it properly. There's chemicals in tobacco, our diet and environment that can also cause damage, as can UV light. And certain viruses, such as the human papillomavirus that causes cervical cancer, they can also hijack the genetic programme of cells and make them grow out of control. Different cancer types often have different risk factors. For example, UV light from the sun or sunbeds damages DNA in skin cells and can lead to skin cancer, but it can't penetrate inside the body to cause cancer internally. So while the fundamental root of all cancers is the same, cells growing out of control, individual cancers may be caused by different factors, usually by a combination of many things, so it might actually be impossible to separate out on an individual basis. Next, Ian McKay asked an interesting question about gene therapy. He says, After an individual receives a treatment of gene therapy, is it the original faulty DNA or the new corrected DNA that gets passed on to their offspring? And is it only males that can pass on the new gene because female eggs are not updated? Most types of gene therapy are what's called somatic gene therapy. They're designed to only deliver genes to certain non-reproductive cells of the body, for example, delivering a healthy version of the damaged cystic fibrosis gene only to lung cells. It's very, very unlikely that these genes could transfer into the sperm-producing cells in men, and even less likely that they could get into egg cells in women. Germline gene therapy, which changes the genes in sperm or eggs, is actually banned in most parts of the world at the moment for both technical and ethical reasons. If you've got any burning questions about genes, DNA and genetics that you'd like us to answer, just email them to genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can tweet us at Naked Genetics or you can post on the Facebook page. That's nakedscientist.com slash Facebook and we'll do our best to answer them for you. And finally, it's time for our gene of the month. If you ask most people what they think of when they hear the words Sonic Hedgehog, they'll probably describe a spiky blue video game character. But ask a biologist and they might at least pause for a moment, because as well as being the main protagonist of the 90s Sega games, Sonic Hedgehog is also an important gene found in mammals, along with the similar genes Desert Hedgehog and Indian Hedgehog both of which were discovered before their rather showbiz counterpart and are named after real species of hedgehogs rather than cartoons. But why hedgehogs at all? Well, like so many genes with wacky names that we'll cover in this series, the original hedgehog gene was first found in tiny fruit flies called Drosophila melanogaster. Healthy fly embryos are torpedo-shaped, with neat rows of spiky scales called denticles. But fly embryos with a faulty version of the hedgehog gene are short, dumpy and rounded and completely covered in denticles, much like the spikes that cover a real hedgehog. 
In fruit flies, hedgehog is responsible for defining the front from the back of the individual segments that make up a fly embryo. And it's also involved in helping flies to grow wings and make other organs. Now, although mammals like humans don't have wings or make embryos in the same way, the mammalian versions of hedgehog, that's Sonic, Desert and Indian, are all involved in helping to shape an animal as it grows in the womb. For example, Sonic Hedgehog sets up the front-to-back pattern in something called the neural tube. This is the precursor of our brain and spinal cord, and it also helps to form our fingers and toes. So despite the comical name, which is, I guess, probably the closest thing that passed for cool in the scientific world of the 90s, Sonic Hedgehog and the rest of his genetic family are vitally important. That's all for now. I'll be back again next month with a look at the world of top models. Not the skinny clothes horses, but the model organisms that scientists around the globe rely on to carry out vital research into genes and human health. If you've got any questions or feedback, just email me at genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can also get in touch through the main Naked Scientist Facebook page, that's nakedscientist.com slash Facebook, or by tweeting at Naked Genetics. Don't forget that every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is available via iTunes or online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast has been brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next month for another peek inside your genes. Genetics.